Good morning, everybody. Can you hear me? Am I coming through loud and clear? Okay, well, three of you here are hearing me, so that's cool. Um, one second. My laptop's like eight years old, so if I don't charge it every second it's on, it's going to die. Um, well, good morning. My name is Wes, and I'm one of the leaders here at uh, the Vancouver Vineyard. Uh, I, I help oversee life groups and communion. And for those of you who don't know, I'm also from South Africa, and I have been here for about 10 years now. And if you're wondering how it's going, people, uh, how it's going, telling people that I'm from South Africa, two weekends ago, I got asked how I lived without a car. And... Um, I told them really well, actually, and then decided that this was my perfect opportunity to go on a 30-minute rant about my passion and vision for having carless cities. So uh, I think that that was her punishment for thinking there was no cars in Africa. Um, ironically, my strongest spiritual gift is pastoring, so go figure. Um, but uh, just... Just to be completely transparent and, and honest with you guys today, um, I, I really struggled writing this sermon because I don't know if you heard, there was a pretty big decision that uh, happened this past week. And if you don't, that means you're doing a really good job of not being on social media, well done. Um, but I just wanted to address that elephant in the room this morning and just put it out there because I don't think we're called as disciples of Jesus to ignore what's happening in the world. Instead, we're called to engage with the world. And so, um, for those of you who don't know, the Supreme Court made a decision this past week that I'm sure that you all are aware of. Um, but for those of you who don't know, they overturned Roe versus Wade. Now, depending on your views, there may be some of us this morning who are coming in with happy hearts and excited hearts and maybe justified hearts. And there's also maybe some of us this morning who are gonna be coming in with angry hearts, disappointed hearts, and even fearful hearts. What I wanna recognize that in this room today, there's a good chance, in fact, I know for a fact that all of those hearts are in here this morning. Wherever we land this morning, it's important to know that there is someone who is going to have a different set of opinions and feelings to our own. And so our question then is how then do we move forward and be the church during this time? Well, I don't have a lot, I really don't know, but I think Jesus does. And I think the scriptures and the story of the kingdom located in the table can speak to us this morning too. So if you have your Bibles with you, or if you don't, that's fine. But if you do and you want to open it with me, we're going to look at Matthew 19, uh, 6, verse 19. Uh, we are right in the midst and thick of the sermon series we've been going through with the Sermon on the Mount, um, Jesus' teaching. And um, this is probably the most famous teaching in the world. And um, I think that what we've heard these whole, this whole time is that Jesus did not shy away from confrontation and engaging with people where they were at and his disciples, non-disciples, everyone. Last week, Marshall gave an incredible sermon about nonviolence and boy, did I leave feeling convicted. 
Um, I don't have a gun, but I was ready to bring my imaginary gun up into the altar. But let's read this morning. Matthew 6, verse 19. Jesus says, Don't store up treasures here on earth, where moths eat them and rust destroys them, and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven, where moths and rust cannot destroy, and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be. Your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. So, as I mentioned earlier, I'm from South Africa, and when prepping for the sermon, I realized that part of my personal story, as well as the story of the country that I grew up in, actually can help play a helpful part in this passage. I recently found out uh, these two psychological terms called high-context cultures and low-context cultures. Um, Ironically, it related to my marriage too. So, I found out I come from a low-context culture, which means that a story can be summarized in one sentence, no matter what the story. I could probably find a way to summarize the whole entire human history in one sentence, if you give me the chance, because I come from a low-context culture. However, high-context culture requires a lot of details. So it frustrates my wife to no end when I tell her a story in one sentence and she's left going, is that it? So this morning, as I step into the high-context culture, I'm gonna give you a bit of background of the story of South Africa. For those of you who don't know, South Africa started what was called apartheid in 1948, and apartheid literally means to separate or to be apart. And for the government at this time, this meant segregation of races. What ensued was 50 years of the most extreme racial segregation that is still part of South Africa's story today, even though apartheid is over. But what is not really well known about this story is that one of the strongest roots that took a hold of the hearts of the people who started it had to do with money. Before apartheid was started in the 40s, 30s, 20s, South Africa was stricken with huge economic problems that led to major class divisions. There was an incredible amount of poor people in South Africa across racial lines. And the solution to this problem was to divide people up by their races and to bring the entire white population into an area of wealth and the entire black population as well as other groups of color and place them into extreme poverty and cut them off to access to wealth. The result was absolute devastation that continues in the fabric of South Africa's society today. The economic situation in South Africa today still mirrors that of apartheid. The top 0.1% of households hold 90% of the country's wealth. The top 0.1% hold 90% of the country's wealth. I've got some pictures to show this reality if we've got them. So this picture here, if we can go back one. Uh, so this is a middle class suburb on the left, and that is a, what's called a township on the right. Um, 
That's one township. There's a township in South Africa that we'll see now, and we go to the next one. There's another, there's a, uh, one of the premier golf courses in South Africa right next to another township. And when we go to the next slide, this is a township, this is the biggest township in South Africa. This has two million people in it. Two million people, um, probably the size of, um, I'm taking a random guess here, but probably downtown in Hazeldell is probably the size of it. Um, right behind it, you can see some tall buildings. That is uh, the town called Santon. That is the richest area in Africa. Not South Africa, Africa. Less than two miles from one of the poorest parts in South Africa is the richest part in Africa. So this is a picture of what happens when our lives are captured by the earthly treasures that become idols. This picture, if we can actually go back one slide, um, one more, sorry. This picture here gives us a great image of what it means and the effects of what happens when our hearts are captured by earthly treasures. These pictures are the exact opposite of Jesus' vision of the kingdom of God. And you may be thinking, well, Wesley, that's a shame, but that's not what ha what's happening here in America. Well, to a degree, you're right. However, here's some stats. The top 10% of this country hold 70% of the wealth. And the, the more you go into it, the greater the wealth is, becomes. And that amount has been increasing every single year since 1981. You only need to drive five, five miles in any direction to see the story of America where a million-dollar house can be right next to a house falling on its last legs. And that's because the truth is wealth and money play an important part in our lives and affects every area of society. And there's a reason why Jesus warns against people becoming wealthy and speaks about the danger of wealth and greed. Just under 30% of all of Jesus' teachings were on money. Clearly, wealth and money is something we need to be extremely careful of as disciples of Jesus. Jesus wasn't lying when he said that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of God. That should give us all pause. Why? Because we live in the wealthiest nation in the history of the world. I can't, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's three or four states that actually constitute the top 10 wealthiest countries in the world. I think California is like the fourth richest country in the world, but it's a state. And, um, and I'm, not, I'm not a fan of saying, well, even poor people in America are rich compared to the rest of the world's poor, because I think there's context. But I think a good way of summarizing it is like this. No matter where you live in the world, disciples of Jesus need to be extremely careful about how they are accumulating wealth. But as people in America, and I would be saying this to any first world country in the world, Europe, Australia, any first world country, we need to be even more aware. I have a story that might look what that might look like in our personal lives when we allow wealth 
to grab a hold of our hearts. And it involves me. Growing up as a white person in South Africa, I was around a lot more wealth in the majority of the country. My dad was an entrepreneur and he had a lot of businesses. Some failed, but one really, really worked. And from the ages of 14 to 19, I was considered part of the 1% of South Africa. We lived in the most premier golf estates in the country where we were surrounded by complete opulence. Uh, if we go a couple more pictures ahead, that's really blurry, but that was the golf estate I uh, lived in. That was the clubhouse. And we go one more picture over. That wasn't my house, that was my next door neighbor's house. I couldn't find my house, unfortunately. Um, so that was the next closest thing. That was the area and I lived in. I lived in the one half of South Africa that was completely different to the other half. I was set in life. I was going to study finance in college, and then I was going to join my dad in his business and then take over it one day. It was all set. He had become a property developer and was overseeing 30,000 houses at that time. My life was set up to where there was no reason for me to ever think I would ever have to worry about money and ever worry about becoming poor. And then the 2008 financial crash came. And we lost, and when I say everything, I mean everything. Being my dad being a property developer, we would often move into the unfinished houses that we would then finish while we were developing it and then sell it. So we moved into an unfinished house that we couldn't finish. We didn't have a kitchen, we had concrete, um, we couldn't finish it. And so we lived in an unfinished house for three years. We lost all our cars, and we just had enough money to put food on the table and, I, and put gas in our cars. And I mean just, I mean just. And if I'm being honest, the hardest part was actually not losing everything. But it was losing my future that I had attached my whole identity to. It was losing all the treasures on earth that had become everything in my life. And I was lost. Those earthly treasures that I had set my heart on became my idols. And so we've seen what it looks like to set, when you set your heart on earthly treasures and possessions. It took um, years of therapy and Lord doing intense work into my life to finally come to a place to see what had happened. But just like the text says, when your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when it's unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. So what does it look like to have a heart set on heavenly treasures? Well, I think this passage gives us a really good clue. You see, the words for unhealthy and healthy in this passage can also be translated into stingy and generous. And so we get a glimpse into what Jesus is talking about when he's asking us to set our hearts on heavenly treasures. We can say that generosity is the evidence of a life devoted to Jesus and a life devoted to heavenly treasures. Whereas stinginess can be the life either devoted to something else or a life attempting to serve two masters which Jesus warns against. The mark of a heart set on heavenly treasures is a heart that seeks to be generous. This is the antidote of a life of darkness. 
We see this in the government that installed apartheid. They were not trying to be generous. They were trying to store up all their wealth and all the earthly possessions for themselves. The same thing happened with me when we lost everything. My heart was not generous and was not wanting to bless people in this way, but I was solely focused on building my own kingdom and wealth. And so I think a really good picture of the life that Jesus can create for us when we set our heart on um, heavenly um, treasures is the story of the Good Samaritan. I'm gonna read that real quick. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of all his clothes, beat him up and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged him. Then he put the man on his donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you next time I'm here. You see, the Good Samaritan is a story about a man who was robbed and beaten and left for dead, who was ignored by everyone you expected to help him out. Instead, a Samaritan, who would have been considered his enemy of the time, picked him up and used some of his most prized possessions in olive oil and wine to help bandage this man up before he put him on his donkey and took him to an inn and paid for his stay and even said, charge me more if you need. This is a man whose heart was led by compassion and actions were generous. He was a man rooted in having his heart set on heavenly treasures so that anything he owned in earthly possessions would become a blessing to others. This might be a controversial take, and this is mine and I'll own it. But I think as disciples of Jesus, we're not called, um, we don't technically own anything. We may legally own something, we may own a house, we may own a car, but ultimately everything we own is God's. So what does it look like to set our hearts on heavenly treasures and take seriously earthly possessions? Um, I told these last night to um, Liz and Irene and Liz gasps, no! So we'll be interested to see how this goes. Um, So um, first thing we can do is take our finances seriously. Track them and find out where your heart is at when you are and what you are spending. Um, this is probably the hardest thing you could do. (laughs) It's like opening your life and your heart up under the table because you get such a great picture of what's important to you and what you're attached to. I also want to preface this and say, this comes, when when I say these things, firstly, I'm preaching to myself. Secondly, I'm also under the assumption that I take Jesus seriously when he says he did not come to bring judgment, to to bring life. All these are invitations just as they are warnings. 
These are invitations from Jesus to us. Well, not exactly like this, but we are invited by Jesus to step into the kingdom of God. The second one, create a budget that's focused on generosity as much as it is with providing for your family and securing your family's well-being. This is really important. Uh, I don't think we are called to give up like a general thing. Don't give up your life savings. Don't cash in your retirement and give it away. That's not the premise of this and what Jesus is saying. Those things are important. Jesus is calling us to be wise and generous with our money. So please hear me when I say that. Um, go, go grab that $5 coffee. Go for it. Um, go, don't give away your neck pillow when you go on a plane. Um, <laughs> buy, buy that Zara t-shirt. I'm not preaching to myself right now. Um, but I think what we can see is we can go and we can say, is our generosity matching what we are trying to secure for ourselves? If we're leaning really strongly to making sure that our kingdom is good and ignoring the reality of being generous, we may want to look at that. And we may want to go, hey, maybe I can start being a little bit more generous. How much money am I keeping to myself? How much money am I blessing others and being generous with? Third one, be aware of your emotional attachments to possessions in your life. This is a really good indicator. I knew that something was wrong when we lost everything because I was a mess. My emotions were everywhere. I was, I, my identity had become a part of the earthly possessions. And so if there isn't something in your life, an earthly possession that has become an idol, a good chance is that you're gonna be very emotionally attached to that possession. And last one, find creative ways to bless people without money. This is a good reminder for us that money is not the only earthly possession and that we can bless others through our time, through our service, through helping Steve with the church. Um, you can pay me back later, Steve. Um, just joking, that was a really good joke though. Um, uh, thought of that on the spot too. Um, but there are so many ways we can be creative with how we bless others that doesn't involve money. Money's part of it, yes. But if, we, if you are in this room this morning and money is not a big feature in your life and you don't have a lot of it, please hear me in. I'm not saying that you have to suffer in order to bless others. That's a really good distinction to make. It's not about suffering and blessing others. That is not what Jesus is calling us to do in that sense. But no matter where we are, no matter what we have, we can bless others. Um, the Spirit put something on my heart during worship and I'm trying to remember it because I was like, that's really good. It's not how much possessions we have. It's what we do with the possessions we do have. Thanks. I thought it was really good too and I was like, I've got to, I've got to put that in. When our heart is set on being generous and blessing others, our lives become, our lives become transformed and we are also able to partner with God in his kingdom of transforming other people's lives too. My life, my heart, my life was transformed when I was here. I was going through seminary and I was working full time. I had no access to student aid and I had no access to student debt because I was an international student. 
I had $5,000 I had to pay my school. And if I didn't, I would not get my records. Um, I said this to a friend of mine, and if I get tearful, it's because it transformed my life. That friend came to me the next day, and he handed me a $5,000 check. And he said to me, there's no strings attached. You never have to pay me back. Go pay your school. And if it wasn't for that, I probably wouldn't be here today. I probably would have had to have gone back to South Africa. I won't get into the details of that. But his generosity transformed my life and impacted me today. And I wouldn't be standing here if it wasn't for that. When our heart is set on being generous and blessing others, we partner with God in uniting heaven and earth and enacting the future kingdom of God now in the present. Jesus brought the future into the present and showed us a picture of what it's gonna be like in the times to come. He gave us a glimpse of the type of world we're going to live in where heaven and earth is united. This has been part of God's plan ever since the beginning of time to unite heaven and earth where he can dwell with us. So in this cultural moment, I started with the Roe v. Wade. And I know this scripture isn't talking about Roe v. Wade. But in this cultural moment, I think questions we can be asking each other, no matter where we land and how we feel about the decisions, how can we be generous to one another? How can we be generous to those who have differing opinions and feelings about the decisions made this week? I think most importantly though, this passage is calling us to examine our hearts and to find out why we are feeling the emotions we are feeling. Is it because our side has won? Is it because we're victorious and someone else lost? Are we angry because we lost? Is that anger being set in as bitterness? Ultimately, God is calling us to examine our hearts this morning. 